what determines someone's worth? What if they're young, dependent, inconvenient? Or what if they walk or talk different? Does that change it? they have different color hair or skin? What if this person is anxious or sick or even questioning their own life? Is my life more valuable than theirs? Who determines that? At the outside of the COVID-19 pandemic, when lockdowns were in full swing, actress Tarashi P. Henson of the TV series Empire indicated that she seriously contemplated taking her own life. Uh, speaking on her Peace of Mind with Tarashi Facebook watch series, she said, quote, for a couple of days, I couldn't get out of bed. I didn't care. That's not me. Henson said, then she began having thoughts about ending it, prompting her to think about grabbing the gun that she had recently bought. Quote, I could go in there right now and just end it all, unquote, she recalled of her thoughts at that time. For two nights, Henson contemplated suicide and withdrew from the world entirely until she finally told a girlfriend about the painful thoughts that she was experiencing. A recent study out of the UK showed that depression has dramatically increased during the COVID-19 lockdowns, in part caused by mitigation activities, including the impact of physical distancing and stay-at-home orders, the report began. Symptoms of anxiety disorder and depressive disorder have increased considerably in the United States during April to June 2020, compared with the same period in 2019. One of the most striking uh, things about this study to me was that these challenges have been found even amongst children. They tracked a correlation between the forced school closures, social incapacitation, and economic hardship that have caused children's depressive symptoms to have increased substantially relative to before the lockdown. Specifically, the study concludes by saying this, quote, our findings emphasize the need to incorporate the potential impact of lockdown on child mental health in planning the ongoing response to the global pandemic and the recovery from it, unquote. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that those protective measures weren't absolutely necessary. They were, nor is the study saying that. What it is saying is that this is a reality that we're facing, that we are surrounded by a rather large mental health challenge that we're only starting to see the very beginnings of right now. Uh, we've seen incredible stress on the medical personnel during this time as they experience what's called vicarious traumatization or witnessing the trauma of others. We have all seen a large wave of grief sweep over the population for many reasons, like the loss of financial stability and not being able to go back to work, and grief for those who have experienced the death of a loved one under these circumstances, and the unattended grief that accompanies things like not, uh, not participating in normal rituals like funerals or getting the chance to say goodbye in person. And we've seen the magnification of pre-existing mental health conditions like bipolar depression and anxiety. 
Uh, let me just start the message today with a few statistics about mental health. In the United States, every year, 40,000 people die by suicide. That's twice as many as there are homicides. Furthermore, one in five Americans suffer from a mental illness. One in six take some sort of psychiatric drug. 19% of the United States adults experience an anxiety disorder. And an estimated 17.3 million adults in the U.S. had at least one major depressive episode this year. I think you can see by looking at the screen that these mental health challenges are extremely widespread, not to mention the friends and families that are affected by those statistics that are up there on the screen as well. And so today we're going to begin a month-long sermon series about the dignity and worth of every single human being. Mental health issues are something that we are facing, and they're not just something that happens outside the church. Uh, the title of this series is intentionally, They Equals Me, to draw attention to the fact that these issues are not just for bad people who don't know about God. Uh, these things are things that all human beings uh, wrestle with. And so uh, one of the things that happens with people who experience mental health is they experience other people uh, devaluing them in the sense that they don't quite understand uh, experientially what they're going through. And so they tend to think, you know, they're less than or they don't cope like I can cope or uh, there's just kind of a lack of dignity there because of a lack of empathy. So over the course of the next five weeks, we're going to look at how the biblical doctrine of human dignity intersects with these kinds of contemporary issues. Today we'll talk about dignity and mental health. Next week, we'll talk about dignity as it relates to special needs. Third, we'll talk about dignity and race. Fourthly, we'll talk about dignity and the sanctity of human life and justice for the unborn. And then finally, we'll talk about dignity at the end of life and distinctively Christian care for those who are dying. And we're going to discover that this biblical ethic for the sanctity of human life touches so many different areas. And so today's kind of going to be a foundational message as we lay the groundwork for the rest of the series. And I want to start by asking and answering a really, really basic question. What does it mean to be human? Uh, this is one of the most profound questions we could ever ask. Sociologists study this. Anthropologists look into this. Philosophers try to answer this question. Psychologists try to untangle the meaning of this. Uh, politicians and social activists legislate for uh, the rights of human beings, but what exactly are they fighting for? What does it mean to be human? Have you ever thought about that question? St. Augustine said it so well. He said, men go abroad to admire the heights of mountains, the mighty waves of the sea, the broad tides of the rivers, the compass of the ocean, and the circuits of the stars, yet pass over the mystery of themselves without a thought. What is a human being? How do we understand that most basic question? Is it whatever we want it to be, or is there a more definite answer there? Our answer to that question, your answer to that question, affects everything about everything. It affects everything you do, everything that you say, everything in your life. And now what complicates this question is that our culture simultaneously provides lots of mixed messages about this, which is why so many of us in our society are confused right now. You go off to college and you attend your Psych 101 class and the professor says your problem is that you don't understand your dignity and worth and you have a lack of self-esteem. And then the next class you go over across the hall hallway to your biology class and that professor tells you that you're really just an evolved amoeba, that you're actually just stardust and you go back to your dorm room going, huh? How does that make any sense? 
We are increasingly living in the midst of a culture which is flooding us with confusing and conflicting answers to this question. Some of those answers actually lead to destructive and harmful ends, and so we need help. Fortunately, the Scriptures, ladies and gentlemen, is not silent on this issue, which is good because we don't want to talk about human dignity in culturally defined terms. We want to see what the Word of God has to say. And when we talk about humanity or biblical anthropology, we want to look at it through the lens of something that's called redemptive history, which is the story of humanity as broken down into these four different stages, our creation, our fall, our redemption, and our hope of consummation. And one of the keys to mental health is understanding where you fit into the grand story of humanity. In other words, in what story do you believe that you're living? That's an important piece to your mental health. The scripture is like a four-act play with these four different parts. And so those will be the four movements in the message uh, today, which will be foundational for our entire series, but particularly relevant to mental health. With that background, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help today. Heavenly Father, we pause and bow before you with humility, knowing that we are looking at your word. We thank you for preserving this text, for inspiring it. Holy Spirit, I ask that through the work of illumination that you might open up our minds, our eyes, our ears, most of all our hearts, that we might understand uh, the word as it relates to us. I pray for each person here that you would bless them where they are, that you would let them know that you created them, that you know them, that you love them, and may they find that. Uh, found very truly and very profoundly and very clearly in your word today. I ask for Christ's sake and for his reputation. Amen. As we start with Act 1, we look at the story of creation, and we look to Genesis chapter 1 where it says this in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Pause there and just make a few observations with me from this foundational text for this series. The first observation is rather obvious. Number one, human beings are created by God. This is where we must start. John Calvin wrote famously in his Institutes that we cannot understand humanity until we first understand God. This means we are not just highly evolved accidents. No, we are created with a purpose for a purpose. The whole idea that we have rights, the reason why people have dignity and worth comes from the idea that we are endowed by our creator with those rights. This is not where our culture is. Atheist Bertrand Russell said over 100 years ago that if there is no God, then the universe is blind, it's impersonal, and it doesn't care about you. Not only will you die, but the whole civilization will die, and it will be almost as if this never happened. Therefore, nothing you do has any purpose. Nothing you do really matters at all. In modern days, Steven Pinker at Harvard wrote an essay called The Stupidity of Dignity. In that essay... He said, if you really believe in science, then there is no such thing as human dignity or human rights. The only reason you feel like there is, he said, is because your ancestors believed that there were things like dignity, and they thought that trait helped them survive, and now it's hardwired into your brain because of evolution. But he says, to believe that nowadays, that's fundamentally dishonest. It's, it's, it lacks intellectual integrity. 
That's where we are. That's the secular understanding of what it means to be human. It's quite despairing. It's so despairing that in pop culture, there's a play called Breath by Sam Beckett, who uh, wrote this famous play. It's 35 seconds long, and there's uh, nothing on the stage as the curtain lifts but trash. It's just piles and piles of trash on the stage. And it's really dark when the play starts, and then, um, then the play starts, and the, the, the lights come on, and, and there's a cry of a baby, and then you hear the inhaling of breath, and then it starts getting dimmer, and then you hear an exhale, and then you hear somebody gurgling, and then the lights go out. And what's the point of his play? You're trash. Can you see how this might impact your mental health? Some of you think you're trash. That's the problem. In philosophy, this is called nihilism. It's a rejection of all religious and moral principles because of the belief that life is meaningless. But Genesis chapter 1, the Christian worldview, says the exact opposite. Right? You are not trash. You are a prized and precious possession of the Most High God. You're made in His image. He exists and He created you to reflect Him. Now think about that. Just even as you're sitting here in this room or watching from home, you are surrounded by other created beings. It's amazing. Can you see how right away the scriptural perspective about being created with dignity is paramount to our mental health? Take a look with me at Psalm chapter 8, a Psalm of David, which is a poetic commentary on Genesis chapter 1. David said this, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind? See that question? What is mankind? That you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. David says, consider the vastness of the universe and everything that is up there. God made all of that as if it's something small. And if that's small compared to God, then how big is God? If you want to picture how amazing God is, just go out when it's dark outside and look up. A few of us did this a couple weeks ago when we were looking for Jupiter and Saturn and how they were lining up uh, for the first time in 800 years. If you got, how many of you went outside and you saw that one of the days? Yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, just a few of us. All right. Well, I thought it was pretty interesting. It was cloudy the first day, but the second night it was pretty good, pretty bright, pretty amazing. Those are just two little planets in our little solar system, this little cul-de-sac that we live in in this galaxy called the Milky Way. Now, if our solar system was the size of a quarter, the Milky Way would be like the size of North America. It is 100,000 light years across. There's billions of stars in our own galaxy, and we're just one of billions of other galaxies. When you step away, you get the idea that maybe we're not that big after all. Astronaut Neil Armstrong said when he went up into space and was looking back at the earth, he said this, it suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put up my thumb and shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the earth. And then he says, and I didn't feel like a giant in that moment. Instead, he says, I felt very, very small. Maybe King David was right when he wrote in Psalm chapter 8, when I consider the works of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? See, one of the things we have to do at the outset of this series is we have to right-size God 
in this series. He's bigger than anything we've ever thought of him. He created this universe on this canvas that we can't really even fathom. I remember when I first learned about astronomy and Betelgeuse and all these crazy stars that are up there and how huge they are, this shrinking feeling came over me. And I realized I'm just a vapor, a tiny, infinitesimally small speck of dust in the universe just floating around. You say, Pastor Dave, what are you trying to make us feel small? You are small. I'm just trying to say, keeping it real here, we are small. But because of the scriptures, we also learn that there's this insignificance paired with great significance at the same time. Even though we are these tiny specks floating around on this small planet, the scripture tells us we are also prized by his majesty. We are loved by God. And just as he calls out all the stars and names them one by one, he could go in this room and those of you watching at home and name each person here one by one. He knows your name and he loves you. And David says in Psalm chapter 8, he crowned you with glory and honor to be rulers over his creation. And every human being is precious and cared for by this awesome and majestic creator God. Listen to this. You are not trash. No matter what your capacities are, no matter what race you are, no matter what mental health challenges you face, no matter how dependent you are, if you are a human being, you are made in God's image, marked by his majesty. This is the doctrine of creation. It has profound uh, impact on our mental health. Why? Number two, human beings are created in the image of God. Now, all of creation, in a way, puts on display God's character, uh, but but only human beings are said to be made in his image. Theologians call this the imago Dei, or the image of God. And it means that, that we have several aspects of ourselves that are created to reflect God. Aquinas said it's, it, it has to do with our ability to reason like God. Other theologians like Ryrie say, say it has to do with reflecting his moral character and goodness, that like God, we too pursue justice, mercy, and love like God does. It means, like one of my professors said, that we're given dominion, that we're to rule, that we're to be vice regents, that we, we are to be part of a kingdom, and that we have a jurisdiction that's been delegated to us like God rules. It means also that we are creative. We too, like God, can imagine and fashion and be artistic and create beauty on a small scale like God does on a large scale. Uh, for those of you artists who are paying attention today, did you notice the language in Psalm chapter 8 when it describes God's creative work? It doesn't say that it was his arms or his hands, really. It says that it was his fingers that created us. That, that's the language of working on a model. That means that our God is an artist. Every other creation myth in the ancient Near East talks about the world being born out of battle. But the scriptures... Teach us that God actually fashioned us simply for the delight of doing it out of love. Every single person we ever come eyeball to eyeball with is made in the image of God. I know this world is broken by the fall, but the Bible does not begin with the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It begins with creation in Genesis chapter 1, and the image of God is actually reaffirmed after the fall in Genesis chapter 9. It is still there. Theologians say it, it's been defaced, but it is not erased. We still all bear the image of God. Therefore, the implications, the practical application of this doctrine is that anything that would seek to attack or damage that image is sin. Friends, this is why murder is wrong. This is why suicide is wrong. This is why abortion is wrong. This is why euthanasia is wrong. This is why racism is wrong. 
Why? Because these are attacks on the image of God. Even the sin of slander is tied to the reality that we are made in God's image. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about that. There's tons of practical applications to this particular doctrine. The reason why a police officer kneeling on the neck of another human being until he dies is wrong is because he is made in the image of God. The reason why rioting and looting and arson are wrong is because they are doing violence against other human beings who are made in the image of God. The image of God is foundational for our understanding of human dignity, and we'll come back to this throughout our series. The third observation I would make about Genesis chapter 1 is it seems to indicate that human beings are created to work and rest in a rhythm. There's this principle of Sabbath that God sets up at the very beginning for our good. I mention this because one of the things that can lead to mental health issues is an unrealistic pace in life. We are constantly rushing, going full force all the time, constantly busy doing something. But we are made for a work-rest rhythm. Out of all the Ten Commandments, did you know that the longest commandment that we're given is the commandment about rest? That is on purpose. We are made for this work-rest rhythm by design. Human beings are rhythmic. Even as you're watching this message, your whole pulmonary system right now is in rhythm as you breathe out and you breathe in. You have a cardiovascular system that's also in rhythm. When you were first born, your mother actually gave birth to you in rhythm. The labor pains would come over her and then they would subside. Everything about us is created in this rhythm. We need solitude in rhythm as we pull away from others and then we come back together and so forth. We are made to live with rhythm and work and rest is one of those rhythms. Friends, if you're starting to recognize a kind of rushed pace coming back into your life, you need to address it. It has implications for your mental health, right? We can't drive our cars with no oil changes forever and just expect them to continue to run, right? The same thing is true for our human body. Again, what story are you living in? One of the stories we live in is we work ourselves to death to feel like we're worth anything. We work hard to be successful and perfect to demonstrate and prove that we are acceptable. That is not the biblical story. That is the American story. Nothing wrong with hard work, but in the Christian faith, we must recognize that our worth is actually not tied to our hard work. It is bestowed upon us by our creator. And God says you're created to work and rest in rhythm. The fourth observation I would make about Genesis chapter one is that human beings are created for community. We learn most clearly in the New Testament that we worship a triune God who is three in one, who exists eternally as one being who also exists in three separate yet co-equal persons. And God says, let us make mankind in our image. This is essential to understand who we are. We are created for a community. God created everything and said it was good. In fact, it was very good. But the one thing God says in Genesis that's not good is to be alone. And so we need each other. About 15 years ago, through the work of a psychiatrist named Dr. Dan Siegel, a field of science took off called interpersonal neurobiology. It basically studies the intersection between what's going on from a neuroscience perspective and relationships. How do we understand how our brain and our relationships with others are flourishing maximally? Because our brain is interconnected with other people's brains. 
Dr. Kurt Thompson, a Christian psychiatrist, says, quote, we don't regulate ourselves without the help of someone else's brain. We medically need each other. Those of you who are parents, you know this. Babies come out of the womb. Immediately, they are looking for someone else who is looking for them. This is by design. Consider this when you think about the pandemic and you consider that there's been so much isolation and loneliness, not being able to have the appropriate physical touch from our loved ones. Think about those who are alone in assisted living facilities. Think about the older population who's even more isolated right now, but younger too as there's been a loss of socialization for children with homeschool. Here's a question that was posed to me a few days ago by Pastor Bob as we were talking about this series. He said, you know, Pastor Dave, what is mental health, though? You know, we talk a lot about mental disorders and, you know, personality disorders, but how about the flip side of that? What's the positive definition? What is mental health? And I don't know that I've ever thought about that question before. And so I said, you know, I need to think about that. It's not that easy to define, actually. Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson talks about he went all the way through medical school, got board certified in psychiatry, and he never had one course on mental health. So I, I have a few friends that, you know, that are psychologists that I talk to. So I, I just texted them a few days ago. I said, I'm looking for like a good working definition of mental health. What would you say? And so my friend Mark texted me back. He said, one definition is being mentally healthy when one's thoughts, perceptions, affects, and senses consistently and accurately reflect reality. I like that word, reality. Another friend of mine, Julie, texted me back. She said, mental health is being internally directed, feelings, goals, thoughts, decisions, while simultaneously being externally considerate. I thought that was pretty good too. Dr. Kurt Thompson makes three observations from Genesis about what it means to live in mental health. He says, we at least see these three things, differentiation, vulnerability, and the absence of shame. Differentiation meaning I am separate from other people. My source of okayness is not located in your being okay. Uh, vulnerability meaning I am actually known by other people. And then the absence of shame meaning I'm actually accepted and I feel like I belong with, with others. This is mental health according to Genesis. This is important for us to understand in terms of community because sin, we'll see in a moment, wields isolation and loneliness. It started long before COVID-19. It began back in the fall. If we are to pursue mental health, we must resist that kind of isolation. It does not coincide with the manner in which we were created. If you want to be mentally healthy, it means living in community. For the past 20 years, as I've been following the Lord Jesus, I've always had a couple of guys in my life that I meet with every week who know everything about me, everything about who I am, what kind of husband I am, my sins, my fears, my dreams, my hopes, my shame, my prayers, everything. And I just ask you, who is that for you? Who knows you? Who are those people around you that you are differentiated from, that you can be vulnerable with, and in whose presence you experience an absence of shame? We all need community. The reason this is difficult to accomplish, though, is because of Act 2, the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, everything, everything, everything gets distorted. We have the instigation of the enemy of our souls who comes with the temptation of Adam and Eve, 
and it results in sin entering into humankind. The serpent basically insinuates God is not really good. He's not really for you. In fact, he's holding out on you. He knows if you'll eat this, then you'll be in the place of power, not him. And he calls into question the character of God. And so sin is entertaining that notion and therefore not putting God at the center of my life, but now putting myself at the center of my life and the entire universe, I would say. What is sin? Well, there's many aspects to that definition, but one pretty good working definition is sin is when I put myself at the center of the universe rather than God. Now, can you see that that would be the biggest mental health challenge in the world? Can you just play that out with me among seven billion people? That is part of our story. Again, what story are you living in? Is it an acknowledgement that we have gone through the fall and inherited this sin nature? If this world seems broken to you and feels broken to you, that is because the Scripture teaches that it actually is broken. Remember, human beings made for radical community, as soon as the fall occurs, though, every single one of our relationships gets decimated and destroyed by the fall. I'll give you four examples. Number one, sin destroys our relationship with God. In Genesis, God comes walking, looking for us in the cool of the day. God was our friend. What did we do? We hid from him, running away from God. This is sin. This leads us to number two. Sin destroys our relationship with ourselves. God comes to Adam and says, Adam, why did you hide? I, I hid from you because I was naked, he said. Now, nakedness in the scriptures is more than just physical. It's also a spiritual reality. We don't want to face who we really are. We don't want to admit who we really are because now we are filled with shame. Sin destroys our relationship even with ourselves. Third, sin destroys our relationship with others. What happens to the man and the woman here? The man like throws his wife under the bus immediately, right? It's the woman you gave me. And as soon as sin comes in, they begin to cover up from each other and they, they don't want others to know who they really are. And so now by nature and by choice, we leverage our God-given capacities not to image God, but for self-serving ends. And so humankind has become, like Martin Luther used to say, curved in on itself, now we begin to crave power and control in relationship to others after the fall. We want to exploit relationships for what's in it for us. And rather than mutual servanthood and covenant love and me giving my life for you, we say, no, 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 you give your life for me to enhance my life. This is the collapse of dignity. And this is the essence of sin. And so Adam and Eve begin to hide, they begin to blame. And we too begin to hide and begin to blame. These are our forefathers. Now the reason why we blame is because when I blame others for all of my problems, then I don't have to change what's wrong with me. I'm not saying that I'm responsible for all the bad things that have ever, ever happened to me, but what I've learned in terms of mental health it, you know, issues like depression and so forth are often a combination of things that have happened to me and the choices that I have made afterward as a result. So true mental health begins when I start addressing the brokenness in, in here, inside. Fourth observation about sin's destructiveness is sin also destroys our relationship with nature and the world around us. Even our physical environment has been impacted. Instead of the ground working in my favor, thorns and thistles have grown up, and now work is difficult and toilsome and sweaty. 
It was there before the fall, but now it's not enjoyable anymore. Even childbearing, bringing new life into this world, is filled with pain and suffering as a result. And all of our relationships are decimated by sin, and now even death enters into the human race. Irma Bombeck, a humorous writer, wrote a funny piece where she said that my life feels like it's always been dominated by dirt. I clean my whole house from top to bottom, and then as soon as I'm done, the first part that I started cleaning at the beginning starts to be dirty again. It's never-ending all these years struggling against the dirt, and I come to the end of my life, and she says, what do I get? Six feet of dirt. The dirt wins. This is the story of Genesis. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. This is sin. It brings death. This is the fall. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. The image of God is there, but it's distorted, it's defaced, not erased. But our world is broken. Somebody once said this, I thought this was profound. The Christian worldview can best explain both the beauty and the brokenness of our world. Every other worldview has trouble explaining both of those realities at the same time. We don't have trouble explaining them at all. All the beauty in this world is from God. All the brokenness in this world is from our sin. Can you see how acknowledging this, acknowledging the fall, would be critical to us pursuing mental health? If we're going to pursue mental health, we have to admit act two has happened in the world and in our lives. We are all broken by the fall, and denial doesn't help. The easiest way for me to deal with things is by denying that they happen, so I don't have to feel it. But someone once told me, Dave, the depth of your healing is directly related to the depth of your feeling. So if I want to pursue mental health, I've got to go there. I would say there's two kinds of people in the world, people who are broken and admit it, and people who are broken and won't admit it. If we deny the problem, though, the only thing that happens is that problem gets bigger and our, that problem begins to grow. It leads to darkness, it leads to depression, all kinds of other mental health issues. And as a pastor, one of the things that can happen in a local church that's problematic is the church can sometimes become a place where you go to make an appearance. But Jesus said, I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. And so for the church to be the church, we've got to create the space where it is a hospital for sinners, where, where it's okay not to be okay. We are broken by the fall. That's act two. Now here's the question. What is this God of the scriptures going to do about act two? Is there any hope? Yes. This is the best part of the story. Act three is the act of redemption. The Christian faith teaches us that Jesus Christ, Colossians chapter one says, came in the very image of God, exactly the way humanity was supposed to be created. He came as the second Adam, but Jesus did not fail like the first Adam did. Instead, he succeeded and lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we deserve. He came on to bear on his back the penalty of our sin and death on behalf of his own creation, and then he was raised from the dead and offers salvation to anyone who would believe as a gift from him. This is the story of our redemption. Psalm chapter 8 actually alludes to this. See, David, he knew about the doctrine of creation. He also knows about the doctrine of redemption. 
It teaches us in Psalm 8 that there's not only a God that cares, but it also says that he's mindful of us. Did you notice that word? Verse 4, the word mindful there actually means to visit or to come near. If you like the old King James, actually they translate it, verse 4, what is man that thou visiteth him? See, some scholars say, and I would agree, that King David here is actually writing prophetically. That the New Testament teaches us that this Messiah that was promised has come and God himself has visited his people. He is mindful of you. This is so essential for our mental health. The scripture teaches me that I have a God in Christ who came as a sympathetic high priest and can understand every struggle that I face, physical and mental. Just consider for a moment the cross. The cross, you know, was invented by the Romans as a device of torture to keep the person in the most amount of agony for as long as possible. It was, it was torture. This is what Christianity teaches that our God endured for us in the work of redemption. So oftentimes when people experience suffering, especially, especially mental health issues, they, th they say things like, well, you know, God, you don't know what it's like. Maybe the cross is God's way of saying, actually, I do. God, if, if only you would walk a day in my shoes. Well, maybe the cross is there to remind us that God says, actually, I have walked in your shoes. God, you don't know how this feels. Maybe the cross is God's way of saying, actually, I know exactly how you feel. He knows what it's like to be rejected and abandoned, devalued. He experienced the utter devastation of his dignity as he hung naked on a cross. In the Christian faith, we have a God who's not removed or indifferent from our emotional plight. Instead, he sympathizes in all of our pain. He is a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And this same God has come to redeem us and give us this hope that we might be restored back into his image again, Romans 8, 29. Redemption now in the work of sanctification for those who place their faith in him is peeling back and undoing the work of the fall of the first Adam. Why? Because God's love is more profound than the effects of the fall. Understanding God's love, knowing and being rightly related to God is essential for pursuing mental health. And this leads to our great hope, act for consummation. We have the hope of resurrection, of new life, the, the promise of a new heavens and, and the new earth. And, and we're promised in Revelation that one day there's going to be no more pain, no more tears, no more dying, for all of the old things will be passed away, and behold, he makes all things new. This is what I long for. This is what we all want, a world that is made with goodness and beauty. Those longings are good, and they are true, we are made for God's glory. Isaiah chapter 43 says, everyone who is called by my name, that's you, ladies and gentlemen, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and whom I made, every person who places their faith in Christ is destined for this glory. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires for which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, you were. In fact, he writes in his book, The Weight of Glory, remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. 
And one day this God will come and make all things new and he will make all things good. Someone once told me, if it's not good, then God's not done. This is our great hope. This is the hope that as a pastor I share with brothers and sisters on the phone during this pandemic whose loved one has died. This is the hope that I shared with a brother a few days ago who it doesn't look like things are going well. We'll certainly continue to pray for him. But he said, Pastor Dave, I can't lose. This is the hope that we need. And as Christians, yes, we grieve, and yes, these losses are real, and yes, sadness is a part of a reality, but we never grieve without hope. Do you see the impact that this act would have on our mental health? This is the hope of consummation. We have precious promises. So here's humanity in these four stages. I'll put them up there on the screen. True biblical mental health, I believe, is embracing the reality of all four of these stages. Because you are created by God, your life has a purpose, and it has dignity and worth and value. Because you're fallen, you have places inside of your human heart that are broken too and need to be made right with God. Because the work of Christ has come and the work of redemption, you can find forgiveness and freedom from guilt and you can find mercy and the love of God and grace of God is available for you. And because we have this hope of consummation, we can persevere and wait for God to work all things together for our good. Friends, embracing this story is your story. This is the foundation for mental health. What story are you living in? How do we apply these theological truths to our life? I think there's two ways. First, we apply them to ourselves. If you're here, you're struggling with mental health, don't be ashamed to seek help. You're not alone. Be honest about where you are and where you're struggling. Maybe you want to do some reading. One of the best books I've read on this is called Spiritual Depression. I put it in your sermon outline for today by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Maybe you need to see a Christian therapist. If you need a referral, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Bob. Wherever you are, choose to be known. Choose to share your burdens. Choose to pray and do life in community and be honest with those around you. Apply this truth to yourself. Secondly, apply this truth for others. Be open to and empathize with those who struggle with mental health. Make the church, help us make the church a safe atmosphere for those who do struggle in this area to help them get the healing that they need. We are just now seeing the tip of the iceberg of the mental health effects of this pandemic. Let's be a part of the solution. This is an opportunity for us as a church. And for all of us, as we begin this new series, my encouragement to you is that you have a decision to make. You can decide as we close today, will I choose to believe what this world says about me or will I choose to believe that I am part of this grand narrative of history, that this story is my story? That's a decision you need to make today. Will you believe what the world says about you or will you believe what God says about you? Let me close with a true story about Jeff Cox. As the worship team comes, I'll tell you the story about Jeff. One day, he was planning to die. Jeff felt all alone. He was depressed. He, he, he had a plan. He was going to intentionally crash his car into a telephone pole. That's when he began to hear what he described later as what must have been the voice of God. It wasn't a voice out loud, 
but it was a voice that he would learn later from attending church in a few weeks after this event that resembled the, verse, the voice of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A few weeks after that, he attended church for the first time, heard the gospel for the first time, embraced the gospel, and decided to dedicate his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, Jeff Cox serves with a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. His greatest passion and greatest hope is to share this good news and this gospel with others who are struggling with mental health as well. That is the power of living in God's story. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for preserving these foundational texts. I pray especially for my brothers and sisters who might be struggling today with issues of mental health. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you could do, that you would instill inside of us this deep and this profound sense that we are actually created by an almighty God, that though we have parts of ourselves that are broken indeed by the fall, and we confess that today, we also know that simultaneously we are deeply loved by you and that we have been given an opportunity for forgiveness and mercy and grace and to be made new And we choose today to decide that we are who you say we are. We are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work. And we are also given a great hope. Lord, I pray that you'd comfort my brothers and sisters and be with us as we explore these issues throughout this series and help us to realize that everyone we come into contact and meet, everyone we come into eyeball-eyeball contact with is someone else that's made in the very image of God with dignity and value and worth. And we pray that you'd use us even during this time to spread your gospel and spread your hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.